The Fail On Podcast, episode 026. You know what? I learned how to overcome fear in a cockpit. And so I, I really want to do something with that. I've thought a lot about taking a lot of that learning from the cockpit, a lot of that high-performance thinking, and creating, you know, creating something where I could teach people about the best learning from the cockpit without them having to be a pilot to do it. Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Hey there, and welcome to the show that believes failing in a hyper-focused way is the only way to achieve your dreams. In a world that only likes to share successes, we dissect the struggle by talking to honest and vulnerable entrepreneurs, and this is a platform for their stories. And today's story is of Nick Tarasio. He was born into the family aviation business and was even working on airplanes by the age of four. As the CEO of Ventura Aviation, Nick runs a multi-million dollar charter company and is also a pilot himself. He got his private pilot's license at the age of 16 and was even flying Learjets by the age of 19. He is also now building a YouTube and social media community sharing amazing flight adventures and documenting it for the world to see. And it's just extremely well done. We'll be discussing what it's like running a family business along with the challenges of actually working with people you have personal relationships with. We'll talk about how Nick is able to leverage his unique talents to cultivate deep relationships and what he constantly does to make sure he is growing and getting out of his comfort zone on a regular basis. But first, I've been traveling a lot as is and I have even more travel coming up. And luckily, all I need to travel with is a backpack for one reason only. It's a shirt from a sweet Toronto apparel company called Unbound Merino. They have clothes made out of merino wool. And get this, you can wear for months on end without ever needing to have it washed. I don't know if that's recommended, but you can do it. But just talk about an absolute traveler's dream. Never check a bag again. And just please check in at the show notes page at failon.com slash 026 for an exclusive failon discount that you won't be able to get anywhere else. And of course, if you'd like to stay up to date on all the failon podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com. How did you get started in entrepreneurship and when was this? So I don't, I don't have a defining moment where it shifted. I grew up in a family business and I think it was a slow progression. I think it was really more of just, I tried to copy everything my dad did and tried to master every skill he had. What, what was he doing? I mean, like, so early memories were things like we would go out and fix airplanes. Like we would We'd take an engine in our basement and rebuild an engine in our basement. So I remember eight years old, literally building engines in our basement. We'd carry it up <laughs> the stairs, put it in a wood-paneled Grand Caravan to drive it out to the airport and put it on an engine. That's crazy. I, I put, put the engine on the front of an airplane. So like, I really don't think I was in entrepreneurship until really well into my 20s, actually. I think I thought I was. I was like, oh, I'm running a business or I'm involved in the management of a business. But really, I was acting more like just a mirror of my father. So, So how early were you actually working in? the business with your dad though? Like, I mean, were you doing stuff at 10 years old to help out? Like, what always, was that like? Always. I mean, since I was, I mean, here's the way to think about it. Airplanes are tiny. The ones we work on are small and we were tiny kids. So my dad being an entrepreneur was like, <laughs> I see opportunity here, climbing the tail of that airplane and buck some rivets and like your way, you know, we could fit in way better. So literally from the time I was five or six, I was working on airplanes. I'd say, I, and I started playing a more major role when I was 13 and I was doing aircraft sales for him. 
So again, it was more of like, well, what does he need to do the calls for? I, I, I have these, like at the time it was like classified ads that I would call and try to negotiate airplane deals. And it was funny because I'd be at negotiating. 13. Yeah, at 13. That's awesome. I'm negotiating a $100,000 discount <laughs> on an airplane and I made $7 an hour. Yeah. So I had no <laughs> yeah. concept of money. It was either, how about 1.1 instead of 1.3 million versus like, could I make $8 an hour, dad? That'd be really nice. So, you know, but again, I think I was just more of like, I was just a good worker. Well, was that, did that at 13? I mean, did that just come from your dad? You, you were watching your dad just bust his ass all the time or how did that come from? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, I think so. I think it was, my grandfather was that way. My dad's that way. Like he just gets it done and he never complained about the amount of work. He was just like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to, you know, make it happen. He would like take stuff and be like, hey, if something's not right, take it apart and put it back together again. So very early on, he instilled this idea of like, understand the fundamentals of what you're doing. Look at all the core parts, put it back together. You'll have a greater understanding. So I was always very mechanical. And I remember I actually started a business when I was 13, but I didn't start it to make money because I didn't know anything about sales and marketing. What I knew is that I buy musical instruments because I'm, I'm a musician. And if I'm a company that sells musical instruments, I get to buy them at, at like wholesale yeah, prices. Yeah, you get discounts. That's all I did. Yeah. <laughs> I just bought my own stuff at discount. But again, it just actually goes to show I was an I was a thrifty ops guy. I was not I was not a sales or marketing guy. Gotcha. Did you actually end up selling any of those any of those instruments? I think I sold to my high school some stuff. Like my friend was like, Oh, I'll buy through you when I need to buy for our stuff stage crew. And I was like, Okay, cool. So I must I think all in all I probably made a thousand dollars. It was a joke. Everyone else we meet in our networks is like, well, I was selling candy. I made $450,000 at 11 years old. <laughs> I'm like, I, I made $1,000. Yeah, I was telling you when we were eating Indian food, I didn't even know what entrepreneurship was until I was after, out of college. So I'm right there with you. I was not born brewing lemonade and you know, building a lemonade franchise in my neighborhood like Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk always talks about. So you're 13 years old doing sales. You're five, six years old crawling into the back of little airplanes and... I don't know what you said, what, buck a rivet? What, I don't even know what that means, but <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing you're screwing something or hammering something. Sort or? of. A, a rivet is a piece of metal that you hit with a, like an impact gun and it flattens it. It flattens the rivet. So it's like you have seen them on, I've seen them on airplanes. Trains have them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like on the side of an airplane. Yeah. Those aren't screws. Those are actually pieces of metal that are formed to hold the skin together. Got it. So you're doing that? Yeah. At five. So yeah. did you... So. <laughs> Were you not playing with friends? Like, did you not have friends? Like, that's not um, a normal childhood. You're you're negotiating hundred thousand dollar deals and and bucking rivets. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of a nerdy, socially awkward kid. Like, I used to get the crap kicked out of me when I was little. So, like, I always didn't. I never really liked people in my school. I never wanted to be around my school. So instead, like, I had friends that were forty year old pilots. Like, I would sit around and talk to pilots all the time. I'd like that was my that was my group really at the end of the day and they would talk to me in ways that you don't talk to a 13 year old <laughs> like, all right tell me about the crazy stuff you get into so i had a really strange life where i felt more like i was in my 20s and 30s when i was a teenager i knew i never really belonged in school so didn't belong in school so you but you graduated high school yeah i graduated high school went to college again i was like this like super nerd right like i so you I, got good grades like you really cared or you i was like care? number eight in my school graduating oh, wow. like got okay. a scholarship to college but the thing is that i didn't give a shit and so I was one of those guys that like I was in some talented program, like talented kids, gifted right. kids, whatever the hell they call it. And they were like, oh, you have to write a book report every year. And I'd quit right before the book report every year. Because I was like, I, I don't care. I don't see what this does for me. So I knew I had good raw materials. I just didn't have anything to do. However, like flying was really sexy and cool. So I mastered aviation at a very, very young age. When did you get your pilot's license? 
on my 16th birthday. At 16. So, okay. So you're still in high school. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, you were, you were doing crazy stuff. Like I, I was, I played tennis growing up, but I mean, I wasn't like bucking rivets and negotiating hundred thousand dollar deals and getting my pilot's license, but that's awesome. So you got a scholarship to college. Did you go to college and graduate? No, I did about a year and a half. Went to Polytechnic University, which is now NYU Poly. And the thing is, I was really good at math and science, physics, computer stuff. So all I, stuff good to be like necessary to be a pilot, basically. Kind of, yeah, kind of, and like good for actually avionics. I use it all the time. I use all the stuff I learned there. But I was one of those guys that never never went to class and then would just <laughs> get an A. Yeah, on the test, on the exam. Until in my second year, I started having classes where the teacher said they were grading me on my attendance. And that's when I was like, mm, I'm already not digging this. <laughs> and my parents wanted me to go and I didn't want to be a dick. So I was like, all right, I'll keep going. But at some point I was like, look, it's my money because it's my scholarship and I don't want to be here and I don't want to live this lifestyle. I mean, no offense to people that went to computer engineering schools, yeah. but it wasn't exactly the culture of people that I wanted to be around. Would you have gone if you didn't have a scholarship? No. Just for financial reasons? I just didn't care enough. Like I, I went because it was easy. And that's why like, as long as I was getting good grades and I didn't have to go to class, I was in. As soon as they were like, no, now you actually have to work at it and it's going to cost you something. I'm like, no, no freaking way. I'm not doing it. What were you hoping to get out of your pilot's license at 16? I mean, did you want to be a full-time pilot, fly charter jets or fly at the airlines or why did you get it? Just because you grew up, grew up around it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those cases of when you're a kid growing up with a dad who flies and fixes airplanes, like talk about some Superman shit, oh, right? Yeah, like man. he literally, the, if the plane was broken, he'd be like, hold on, get out, <laughs> take the cowling off, fix the engine, get back in the plane. I'm like, that guy's a badass, huh? Right. So I think there was, I mean, really when I think about it, it was probably like a desire to like validate myself in his eyes of like, I just want to master everything he mastered because I appreciate that and I admire it. And like I said, it wasn't, a, I think it was, where was it? 1921, 21, 22 when I realized like I'm actually really good at all the things he does and I'm not fulfilled. Like it just doesn't matter. Yeah. At this point, so you leave, you leave school. Are you working full time in the business with your yeah. family? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I left, like I said, about a year and a half, two years in, I quit. I was done. I had no desire. And then I just went to work full time with the business. And what were you doing with the business when you went full time? At the time I was a mechanic and an avionics guy and I was flying Learjets. So it was both of those. I just, at 19, I started flying Learjets. So like, so, you're, you're like, a, like a charter jet. So for charter yeah. clients that needed to go from New York to wherever, I mean, I've been, you name it, I've been there. Like I've been all over the country. I've got about 1500 hours flying jets. And the thing was that my mom wanted me to be a captain. Cause she's like, well, we need, when you get to be 23, which is the age that I had to be at the time. She said, I want you to be a captain. Cause it's hard to get captains. There's short supply. <laughs> and I refused. <laughs> I refused. Yeah. Cause I said, I see where this goes. Now that I'm clear on the fact that this isn't the thing I want. This isn't the part of the business that I want to put myself in. I knew that if I did that, if I got my captain's license, I couldn't overcome her guilt. So she'd be like, come on, we need you to fly this trip. And I'm like, ah. Oh. Yeah, you have to do it. Yeah. So I, I got really clear on the fact that. So you're uh, a business need for you. <laughs> like we're going to groom our son to be, to fulfill a business need for us. Oh yeah. My dad built an army. He really did. <laughs> yeah, he built awesome. like this little army of kids. I mean, he had, my brother was working on airplanes. My little brother <laughs> was doing other stuff. Now he runs our maintenance department. My sister was working in the admin stuff with my mom. Our friends' moms worked in the office with my mom to do, it was like. Full team effort. Yeah. yeah. I was, yeah. Like all the kids were basically the, uh, the, the hiring team. <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, it was, it was interesting because I love flying and I love aviation, but I, I think I just always had this burning, this burning 
feeling that was like, hey, man, I, I don't think your greatest value is going to be flying an airplane, though I love it. I just said, there's something that, that doesn't make sense. The company needs something else from me. And I, I never knew what it was until I was in my mid-20s, maybe late, later 20s. So you had that feeling, and then what did that compel you to do? Well, what I would do is I would master every one of the skills. So I was like, okay, I'm going to be a master mechanic. And then I was like, cool, now I'm just going to like manage the mechanics. I'm like, all right, well, that's not good. Let me master avionics, and I'll build avionics systems. And then it was like, oh, now I'm going to master the flying thing, and I'll try to develop other pilots. But I, I really didn't go too much down that road. I just saw more like I always want to fire myself. Like if I could just keep firing myself, everything's cool. But it was this really sh like slow progression. And again, it wasn't until I accidentally became CEO that things started to make a little bit more sense. I was at a networking event with my mom and my entire family, none of us are like really super social people. In fact, I think we're all like a little shy and insecure in that setting. So we were at the golf, like the Beth Page Black Golf Course or whatever. And this guy comes over and he's like, oh, there's this event in the city, the CEO Trust. He saw us as like wallflowers on the wall. He said, there's this event in the city, CEO Trust. Like, I think it'd be great for you guys. I see you're in the jet business. Like that might be a great place to meet some CEOs. And he's like, you know, would you want to go? And we're like, yeah, we'd go. And he's like, no, which one of you is the CEO? And I'm like, just paused. And my mom goes, he is. <laughs> Pointing to you? Yeah. Okay. And that was it. I became the CEO. <laughs> and I went to work the next day and I was like, I'm the CEO. My dad goes, it's just a title. Don't get excited. <laughs> but then I, I was like, well, what the hell is a CEO? Like I've, I've heard that term, you know, you hear about it in the news. Everyone says CEOs are overpaid and blah, blah, blah. Wait, so you're mid twenties. Is this 25? 27. 27. 27. Okay. So you're, but you're, and you've been in this business the whole time. Have you guys had a structure like that from the beginning where you have, you know, you have a CEO, a CFO, or it was just a None family, just kind of mishmash. Let's, make this business happen? Yes. Okay. It was just, you do what you need to do and you need to do it. We had an accountant, you know, we had mechanics that would help out, but there was no real cor structure. corporate structure. There was no org chart. There was really no delineation of who even the manager was. It was just like, I guess my dad's in charge of everything. I, I don't know how any of this works. But my method was, he's so busy doing, you know, maintenance and flying airplanes. If I just do stuff really fast, like if I'm moving really quickly, no one could even keep up with me. So it's not like anyone could tell me no to anything because I'm just moving so fast. So at that point, I started to really try to dig into like, what does a CEO do and how would that look in a small business? Because clearly I'm not a guy that sits at a big desk and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until it was actually, I, I accidentally ended up at Summit Series, which was kind of just a total fluke. And when I went there, I actually met one of the attendees and asked him. What year was this? Sorry. This must have been 2009 or 2000. Yeah, 2009 was when I first connected with the Summit guys. And I had, I had met one of the other attendees and I asked him, like, what's been the most profound thing for you? And he said, entrepreneur's organization. It's, and I think something Gotham, I never got involved with Gotham, but I joined it and I was like, what the hell is this? And talk about imposter syndrome. I was like, mm, why am I here? I'm just a kid that grew up in aviation that plays with all these toys. Uh, but that was kind of the big turning point. So from there, what what were your biggest struggles in terms of you're now CEO? Like, I know your dad said it was just a title, but you actually you actually took the responsibility upon yourself to to actually act that title, right? Yeah. So what were the biggest struggles in terms of? I mean, was it tough getting staff at the time? I know we talked earlier. You said you have 36 employees now. What was the employee count then, and was it tough getting them to buy into you as the technical CEO? Those are two good questions. So I don't remember the staff count. Maybe we were, we probably weren't that much smaller, to be honest. We were probably the, almost the same size, just unstructured. It was like the wheels were coming off the bus, right? Because there's just, 
no real leadership or uh, structure in place. But regarding some of the staff, a lot of the staff were my friends at the time. They were kids that I went to high school with or I knew through my town and they're not there anymore. And I think that there was some resentment at times of like, even some of the employees that were in other roles, like some of the pilots were like, hey, this kid was a co-pilot for me. Why am I going to listen to him? And, you know, of course there's the entitlement stuff like, oh, he's just Mike's son and what the hell does he know? So there was, I had to overcome a little bit of that. However, my family never felt that way. My family was always like, Nick's capable, he's smart, he's committed, and he does a really good job. So we're one of those rare family businesses where we don't have family business issues in that way, which has been really unique. But it's actually, it's the opposite. Cause like I said to my dad at one point, I'm like, we had these executive team meetings where we're trying to figure out like, I think that's what we do. You have an executive team meeting and you talk about strategy behind a closed door. And he was just like checked out. And I was like, you know what? Don't come to these anymore. And he's like, oh, awesome. I don't like this. So he was clear on like, I want to fix and fly airplanes. And my mom wants to do what she does, which is more of the selling the charter side. And so actually it was just this really beautiful circumstance of everyone was really clear on what they wanted to do. And then they started to see the value of what I was focused on of like, you know, how do we get ops manuals and structure and procedures and really start to find efficiencies. And I, I mean, I still feel like I got a long ways to go. It is a hard business to play in. Going from there to now, what's been really the biggest struggle? Like, have you had any epic failures where you maybe didn't have enough experience there and you made the wrong call and cost your company money or maybe made a bad hire? What's been the toughest learning curve to come over? There's one we're paying for still. So 2007, December, we decided that we wanted to buy another Learjet. And you had how many at this point? We had two, I think. I think we had yeah, I think we had two at the time. We decided we wanted to add another one. And it was just like even my I think my mom said it the other day. She's like, We should have known then that buying your own airplane is a stupid thing to do. <laughs> we were actually in a decent position. We bought this airplane in two thousand seven of you know, in, in the the end of the year. Within six months the market had crashed in two thousand eight and the value of the plane plummeted. And we're still paying off like from I mean we're still paying down all that debt. We still have this loan that these are long-term loans. It's typically like 15 or 20 years. We've still got the debt of this plane that cost a fortune at the time and is really not that competitive. It's not that it's How many really people hard. want to fly on Lear's internet? Well, it's actually, so the thing is that there's a lot of companies that are operating those airplanes, but the difference is that many of them bought the planes after 2008. So their note payment is a fraction of our note payment, right? So there's, it was one of those things where I was like, man, I really wish we had thought that out a little bit better. And figured out what the timing was. Like, never in my mind, never in my mind did it even become like a, let's do like a SWOT analysis of this or let's look at like what could go wrong, right? <laughs> right. Like there's none of that stuff. It was just like, yeah, another Learjet. Let's buy it. That sounds awesome. I like growth. <laughs> and it was just this very like emotionally driven, exci- like I was like an excited idiot. I was like, yeah, let's get that new plane. So I think that having that rounded perspective of like, if things went wrong, what would that look like to the company? And then if things go right, what would that look like? And let's look at both extremes and make sure that one, the upside is worth it. And two, the downside wouldn't kill us. So, I mean, look, we've made it through, we've, we've persevered, but we're, instead of taking a bunch of money home every year, we're just basically paying, you know, paying this particular plane is flat. It's not really making any money. Got it. So I know you mentioned earlier that you you, so you obviously grew up in the family business and you kind of stepped into a CEO role after learning the entire business from the ground up, because that's the environment you were raised in. I know we've talked a little bit about you looking at other opportunities, you know, obviously within within aviation, but also stuff outside of aviation. What 
else are you looking at in terms of being purely an entrepreneur? There's a piece of the business that it was, we actually had, had like a family session with like a family dynamics coach, which was really interesting. And the question came up of like, what do we all care about? And actually everyone in my family all said that we cared about teaching. What made you get a family dynamics coach? I just thought it'd be interesting. So, so it was your idea to... Yeah, I'm that guy. I'm that guy that's like, this sounds cool, man. Like <laughs> self-development, family development. Got Let's it. get more development. So everybody was there, like your brothers, sisters, fa- yeah, like yeah. parents. Yeah, we had everyone there. And I mean, at the time... Was it related to business or was it just personal family stuff that you wanted to get sorted or all of it? It was partly related to business. It was partly of like getting clear on... You know, again, it's a little difficult because in some cases, my parents are the employees. And in some cases, they're the owners of the company. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. But sorry, just to interject. What was it? You just jogged my memory. But what's that dynamic like? Like, obviously, your dad didn't want to be in those meetings. Like, it doesn't. He didn't sound like that guy that really cares about the business management side. He just likes aviation, right? So, yeah, what's he it, loves it. What's it like that relationship in terms of like? Do you boss him around or tell him what to do? Or I mean, what's that like? No, I mean, one, my style is not being bossy, especially not with him because I'll lose. But I think, again, it's just this weird circumstance of like, I would, if it really was a point where like we had a real like, oh, we're butting heads on something or even when my mom were butting heads on something, it was typically just a discussion. We, you know, maybe there'd be a little bit of yelling because we're Italians. (laughs) Yelling is just par for the course. But it was never like a bigger like, oh, we're damaged and now we can't be friends outside of this. Like I said, for the most part, it would just be like, hey, this is what I need from you. And I actually, again, I, I'm just fortunate in the way that they've been very vocal about the fact they appreciate me and they appreciate what I think and they trust me. They trust my judgment. So it really, it is a unique circumstance. I know like the more I've talked to other family businesses, they're like, you know, my dad won't relinquish control and like he tries to set me up for success, but then he's constantly stepping on my, my yeah, leadership yeah. and it breaks down the chain of command. I don't have that. Yes. Yeah, I think that's pretty common within those types of businesses where it's tough for the older generation to relinquish some of that. Yeah. Control. I mean, there's times where sometimes their attitude, my parents' attitude would be more of like, I appreciate what you're doing, but I'm not going to participate in it. You can do it, but I just, I'm not, that's not my thing. So I've had that happen from, from time to time where I'm like, all right, there's, there has to be some certain understanding. Actually, a friend of mine said, he's like, instead of complaining about your, you know, your family members in your business, like as a general statement, he said, always just optimize around them as a creative constraint. And I, I actually like that thinking. Yeah, that's interesting. So back to the family dynamics coach, what were you hoping to get out of it and what did you actually get out of it? So I think the biggest thing I was trying to get out of it was just to make sure that there was a healthy understanding of what everyone's role is. Within the business? Within the business and even within the family. Like it's, it's still, it's very hard for anyone to know what everyone else is thinking, right? So we had... We'd, is that just because you guys are, like are you a quieter, quieter family, like communication wise? Like obviously your times you can get loud, you can butt heads, but... How was, was it open communication typically or would you hold stuff in as an introvert and not express yourself like you should? Yeah, I probably wouldn't fully express. I don't think any of us would fully express. Also, like we were always talking about business. So rarely would we talk about like the feelings behind that. And I think in general, we all wanted the same thing. We all wanted to take care of each other. And there was also like complaining wasn't looked upon as a positive thing. So it's like, you know, we're all just going to suck it up for the benefit of the family. So we all kind of had a little bit of that. But yeah, so like with the, oh, with the family dynamics coach, like the thing I just, I actually remember the main reason why we had started with that. We ended up not hiring that one. We ended up using a different coach, but the main driver at the time was like, where are we going with this business? Cause that's something we didn't have clarity on. Like I knew how to 
maintain the existing structure of the business. That wasn't that hard. It was like, okay, I see what we do. I'm just going to be in maintenance mode and be an editor. But at the point when I brought that, that woman in, I said, you know, what do you guys want? Because that's where I'm stuck. Like if my parents own the business and I'm running it at the time, you know, I was saying like, what do you want me to do? Because I can run it, but what for? Where are we going with this? Like, so you didn't actually own any of the business at the point no, at that time? Okay. No, not yet. Okay. So it was challenging because I was like, you know, I just need to know what you want. Like, what do you want this business to be? And that's when I realized that they don't think on that level. And it was okay. It's just my dad was like, I like flying airplanes, so I got a plane. But he didn't have a strategic vision for the business no. that we're going to go from this to this, and it's going to be an amazing big thing. It was just day to day. Yeah. I mean, the most vision I could get out of them was a bigger version of what we're doing. Right. I'm like, oh, that's not really very clear. And so I had no direction and I, I didn't have any vision for it. I don't know what the hell I want to do. I was always like, wait a minute, I've gotten so accustomed to just trying to put the fires out. And when the business got to the point where you didn't need to put the fires out anymore, that's when I got lost. That's when I got screwed up. Cause I was going, wait a minute, I've been, I've been a freaking fireman my entire life. I'm like, oh, that's broken. I'll fix it. Oh, that's screwed up. I'll fix that too. And now the company's stabilized and everything is profitable. And I'm going, shit, I don't know what to do. Because you're just reactive the whole time. Like 100%. So you didn't, so once there was nothing to be reactive about, you're just like, uh, now what? Yeah, what the hell do I do? I'm like, do we make a bigger version of this? But I realized that that's, so that's why we ended up bringing this woman in. And she said, you know, what do you guys ultimately want to do? And what everyone had said was that they all had a desire to teach. Like all of us love the idea of the teaching side, which is very much our flight school, not so much our charter and our maintenance. So just, just for context, so you have three, three primary business models, right? You have... Yeah. You have the jet charters, you've got the flight school, and you've got the maintenance where you charge people to fix planes. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Exactly. So with that, you know, I got, I got really clear on that. So this is a very long winding answer to get to the point that I know I want to do more around teaching and I know I want to do a lot around coaching. I've done a little bit of coaching through Entrepreneurs Organization and some of the other groups I've been a part of. And I just find that to be extremely, like it's, it's fulfilling and it really gives me that deep sense of like in my belly, I'm like, this is where I can actually have an impact. So I've thought about doing more stuff around that of either personal development, using aviation as kind of a, a lens. So I could talk quickly about an experience I had was I was flying a single engine airplane, the engine quit. And it was my sully moment. How, how high up were you? What altitude? 3,500 feet, maybe 20, 2,500 feet. Not very high. But high enough. <laughs> high enough. I'm here. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like the Titanic. It's like, I know how this story ends. So actually my dad was sleeping in the right seat because it was just single engine airplane. I'm flying. He's sleeping on the way home from an event we were at. And wake him up I'm like, hey, look, we got some interesting stuff to deal with. And it was actually amazing because we were both so calm. There was just this moment of like, I didn't argue with reality at all. I was like, we're, this is real now. Engine quit. There's only one way out of this. We're going to either land in a field or on a road. Or and you've trained for this for, forever. Yeah. So it was like actually no big deal. And I got, and then I was thinking like around the same time, I, I had a string of like, pretty terrible relationships and extremely volatile. And I was like, why would I, I'd be like, oh, why me? How did I end up like this is bullshit, right? So I was like, how is it that in a pilot seat, I don't argue with reality, but in real life I do. And it was years later that I thought about it. I said, you know what? I learned how to overcome fear in a cockpit. And so I, I really want to do something with that. I've thought a lot about taking a lot of that learning from the cockpit, a lot of that high performance thinking and creating, you know, creating something where I could teach people about the best learning from the cockpit without them having to be a pilot to do it. Very cool. Very cool. And just based on that, because I, I find that interesting that you're able to, that you're able to be in that situation and just not freak out. So what was it that, was it just, 
literally the repetition and the hours of training that you'd gone through simulators and you've flown that often? Like, I guess when was the last time that you actually had to go through a simulation dealing with that kind of problem or you have engine failure? Because probably not often, right? Like I would. We sit, we when we go to a sim every year. I mean, okay. I don't. Like I don't once anymore. A year. Once a year, we'd we'd be in a simulator, but it's hard. To, I mean, it's been it's from my youth too. It's like just so deeply ingrained in me. And there there are also like different fear responses that people have. There are like people that have a natural tendency, like if someone pulled a gun on you, you just pee yourself, right? Like that that does happen. And then other people, the gun gets pulled on them, and they're just hyper focused, right? And I just happen to be one of those people that my my stress response is like hyper hyper focus and no emotionality whatsoever and my dad's the same way we're like well, let's just go to solution stay in solution and not argue with the situation because we're just given a precious time so i mean obviously it's nice that i can logically say that but that really was my fear response it was just like nope be focused can we do something cool yeah you want to pull a gun and put it on <laughs> i want to see you pee yourself yeah no so obviously this is the fail on podcast right so it's the whole idea is to push people to get outside their comfort zone and actually take action. And you just you just gave me a beautiful, laid out, eloquent idea that you have that you want to implement because you have a passion for it, right? For creating something, taking the lessons from your life in aviation and being a pilot. And I'd love to see you actually put something into action. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've started and not followed through. I actually spent. I mean, I've got all the content. I did a test run. What you got? You tell you it's not even like a conceptual, theoretical thing. You've already you've got content. Yeah, I've got all the content. Okay, I mean, I'm at the point where I can write a book on it. So let's do the challenge. Let's do a fail on challenge where we'll check back in, and you actually launch this thing, and then we can follow up and we can talk about it again. Are you in? My stomach is twisting as you're saying that, but sure, let's do it. You're it, in? It, yeah, it would be a good thing. It would be great to have. Awesome. It. I love it. I mean, that's the whole point of this whole thing is to make people have that stomach and lean in, have that pain in their stomach. Because I trust me, I, I got it before I interviewed James Altucher. I was like, oh, yeah. I don't want to do this. <laughs> and you just lean into it and you do the best, right? Yeah. But after I did, I was like, oh, you know, I'm glad I, I'm glad I leaned into that fear versus like ran from it. Yeah. So you're in. Yeah. So we can check back in and well, do we want to give a time on this? I'm going to go super long time horizon. <laughs> no, I, I would say realistically, I'd like to do it by the end of the summer, partly because I'm launching a different program in the meantime. And I want to try to use that as a template for launching my program. So yeah, by the end of the summer. So we'll say end of August. End of August. Done. Love it. All right. That's how, that's how you do it. That <laughs> exactly. is how you do it. Man, I'm glad we did this. <laughs> so just... You've had a lot of experience, obviously, within the family business, and it sounds like you're you're finally pushing yourself to to do stuff outside of just that core business. And I know we talked before this, and you want to do a lot of innovative stuff within the current business. But out of all of the, I guess, struggles along your journey, dealing with kind of the family stuff, dealing with like the urge to do stuff that's also more fulfilling, what's been the biggest struggle along the journey, just in terms of of, I guess, struggles that you've had to deal with. So you're talking about as far as balancing fulfillment, staying in the current business and figuring out what other places I want to play in? Anything really. I mean, what's just, like you said, you just had that feeling in the pit of your stomach where it's like, ugh. Like, like what else has caused you pain in terms of the business journey that's been the most difficult to deal with? I think I suffer from, it's actually a blessing and a curse. I've been fortunate enough to, Despite being a 
a kid with massive social anxiety and fear of people, I've somehow managed to land in this incredible network of friends and, and, and just business relationships. I mean, it's not random though, right? Like you, you, like we're in the same community with, with mastermind talks that that's a concerted effort. Like, so you must've had a part of you that's like, okay, like you were aware enough to know that you wanted to be surrounded by people that are doing cool things. Right. Yeah. Like, have you always had that or was that something that? No, no, that, that, that started in 2009. Was that when summit was? Yeah, that was like summit kicked that off for me and that was a total fluke. Mm. Yeah, I don't think you got to to how you ended up at Summit. Oh yeah. Uh, well, let's see. So <laughs> let's hear it. <laughs> All right, fine. So uh, <laughs> I had a friend that she was like, "Hey, there's this program called Guest of a Guest. It's actually funny. Have you ever heard of Guest of a Guest? It's like a website where they have like people go to parties and they take a picture and it's just like all like showing off like cool people doing cool shit at events that I don't get invited to. <laughs> and so you're the guest. No, no, I was not. Actually, someone just said, you should check out this website. They would probably be really good for you to promote your service on because it's a lot of like, you know, the 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 high-end uh, Hamptons crowd and all that kind of stuff. And actually, I, I meant to send a Facebook message to the founder of this because ultimately I had sent an email just saying, I'll give you a helicopter ride to the Hamptons for free if you would broadcast on your platform that you did it with us. And she was like, yeah, sure. You know, all right, cool. Let's see what happens. So... I think they just felt bad when I greeted them out in the Hamptons. I actually flew myself out there to greet them when they got there. And I think they felt bad. We're like, oh, shit, now we got to invite this guy to something. <laughs> so we're like, oh, we're going to this party tomorrow night. You should come to it. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. And I'm again, I'm socially anxious. I still am. I still hate going to parties. But I get invited to this like random Hamptons party. I don't know anything about what's going on. I'm told to dress Hamptons chic. Like, oh, hands what? Are chic, of course. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> I started having a panic attack over like, I don't have nice clothes. I wear yeah. jeans and t-shirts and I'm calling all my, you know, all the girls I know. I'm like, hey, what does this even mean? They're like, overdress, just overdress if you're not sure. So I get dressed up in like a freaking suit thinking like, <laughs> what, what else am I supposed to do? I drive all the way out to the Hamptons and I get out there and the guy who's, he, he was the right hand of the founder, he um, doesn't respond to me. And I'm like sitting in a gas station for a half hour like, they, they never gave me the address. They never gave me anything. Oh. It was just brutal. So finally, I'm starting to drive home with like my tail between my legs. Like, <laughs> right. Wow, I just drove for an hour and a half. What an asshole I am. And he's like, oh, no, no, come to this thing. It's at the College Humor house. I didn't know what College Humor was. I didn't know any of that stuff. And I get there and I'm talking to a dude at the party. Like I, First of all, everyone's in t-shirts t- and jeans. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm there in a freaking suit like a dickhead. Like, I thought this was a Hamptons party. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just like looked for anybody that would talk to me because again I'm like I don't know what's going on here. And already social anxious, like social anxiety. Oh, like, it's terrible. Those are the worst situations. I'm the same way. If I go into a situation where I don't know many people and there's a big group of everybody that knows each other, oh, it's painful. Painful. Yeah. yeah. So I talked to one dude and he's like, "Oh, are you the helicopter guy?" And we start nerding out about helicopters. And I'm like, I need to keep him in the conversation because right. I don't right. want to talk to anybody me. else. Don't leave me. Hold on to me, buddy. <laughs> and uh, so I'm like, hey, you want to go fly in uh, N- 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 Nantucket? Do you want to go to wherever? I was like, just anything to keep him in yeah, the conversation. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I would totally do that. That sounds great. So turns out it was Josh from College Humor. And so I ended up taking him out. And actually, Ricky, his partner, went along for the flight. And you know they took some people with them. And it was awesome. Like We had this great time. And I connected. And I ended up like catching up with Josh from time to time and asking him advice on stuff. And he was and like, just, just Josh is the founder of College Humor? He, yeah, he was the co-founder okay. of College Humor. And so he's like, hey, man, you're kind of a nut, like, adventure type guy. You should meet this dude, Elliot, who's got this thing called Summit going on. And I'm like, whatever, man, just sure. Yeah. 
And I meet Elliot, and Elliot invites me to some stuff. And like, I don't know anything about. And like, some of it's not that big at this point, right? No, it didn't. It, they hadn't even done DC yet. It yeah. was like a very. Oh, so this is like early. This is pre DC ten. Yeah, this yeah, was like yeah. two thousand nine. And I get invited to like meet Robin Hood, which I didn't know what Robin Hood was. And I'm meeting like Tiki Barber and all these people at this thing. And I'm like, I don't know why I'm meeting these people. This has no relevance. So I said to Elliot, which hopefully he won't mind that I'm sharing this. I said, Look, dude. That's great. You got all this stuff going on. Just find two hot girls and come out to the airport and I'll take you flying somewhere. Sure. And that was it, man. Like he brought these two beautiful blondes out and we went to the Olive Garden in Connecticut. <laughs> I was just trying to be ironic. I was like, let's go fly to the Olive Garden. That's and awesome. from that, he just kept inviting me to stuff and I would just visit them when they, when they got the house in San Diego. I went and stayed out there when they were in Miami. I went and stayed with them. And for whatever reason, you know, I just asked Elliot advice. Like how he was a great leader as, as a young guy. It was unbelievable at that age to be so profound and really knew how to build a culture and build a group of people to follow him. So I just asked him, like, how do I be more like you? Which was weird because I'm significantly older than him, you know? And he was happy to give me the advice and he would bring me to the events. And, and that was it, man. Once I was like in the summit world, I started to see, wait, this is what I need more of. I need to be around people that are doing things that think more like I do, that won't just accept things as they are. But I mean, you want to talk about like fear and failure. I mean, I was the most awkward dude. <laughs> I still, like, I still get weird around is that crowd. Is it just because it's, I mean... What's the reason though? Like, cause we can have, we could sit here and shoot the shit and have a good conversation, right? Is it just when you're around people that are really successful or is it more about the big crowds where you don't have any in or connection? So that's part of it. So let's be real for a second. Yeah. I have a really hard time with the approach on hot girls. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like I never was good at that. I just had such a fear of rejection. And then I had a really hard time with like super successful men. Right. So like I was always like, why would they want to talk to me? Right. So there was always that. Yeah, we talked about imposter yeah. syndrome a little bit. Yeah, like, so there's always, always a little bit of that imposter syndrome, which is why I think EO was so valuable for me because I get into EO and I'm like, oh, I don't belong here. And then I realized no one has a fucking clue what they're doing. <laughs> no matter how many zeros, you got people running billion dollar companies like we don't know what to do next. We're getting taken down by small startups that have this really innovative stuff and 17 year old kids have figured things out. So it actually was more of like once I got that clear. It's like a grounding thing, right? Like, yeah. These people are no different than me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Honestly. That, and that, but it took me a while to get that. Even now, though, I still have remnants of that where, you know, I kind of like, you know, I'm at Summit, but I'm not one of the cool guys at Summit. Right. Sure. I'm, like, I'll play the guitar so people like me. But, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> I'll bring a group around. <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what, what do I got to do to be cool? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think I just always kind of have a little bit of that baggage. But that's actually been the hardest journey for me, I think, is the social side and realizing that, like, I'm not weird. I just think I'm weird. And I think I'm being awkward, which then makes me act awkward. And sure. you're like, dude, what is your deal? Like, why are you being so strange? Right. <laughs> I don't know where to go. See, now it's awkward. Now we just got fucking awkward. I got nothing else to say. You want to know what's awkward is, <laughs> this is brutal. This is brutal. Because I told you I was like really nervous going to talk to James Altucher for whatever reason. I don't even know why. I just built it up in my head, right? Like it wasn't, like it's just a normal like he's a nerdy dude he's a nice guy and very approachable like it's i don't know why i built it up in my head but you know i start off the interview we're going along and he's like that's a great point ron i'm like <laughs> did you even like, correct him i'm like who's ron no i didn't correct him because i would have i would have felt, felt like an asshole i would have felt like an asshole <laughs> And then, so he keeps doing it, right? It's not once. It's like throughout the whole interview, he just keeps calling me Ron. <laughs> Talk about awkward. At the end, I was like, uh, James, name is Rob. <laughs> <laughs> he felt really bad. To, and I get it. 
But you probably felt worse than he did. Yeah, I was like, dude, I couldn't even be memorable enough for for him to know, remember my name at the beginning. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I put it on myself a bit, but. So I have a funny story about him specifically. Remember when I told you that my wife is like the most confident human being on this yep. planet? So we're out at Mastermind Talks and she sees James sitting there and she knows him from his like, she gets his emails or whatever. Ah, yeah. And she's like, oh, James. And she goes and sits with him and has an hour long conversation <laughs> with him. Of course. I'm like, I couldn't even approach him. <laughs> right, I couldn't right. even approach him to say like, hey, dude, like, yeah, it would be yeah. great to know you. <laughs> right. She's just like, oh, James Altucher, I'm going to go sit and talk to him for an hour. I'm like, holy shit. That's, a cr- that's like one of the craziest superpowers to me for people is like that they could just do that seamlessly and not blink because it seems like we're cut from the same cloth where we had a lot of mental issues <laughs> yeah. to overcome to even have yeah. a freaking conversation with somebody which is good for me doing this podcast right because it pushes me outside my comfort zone which exactly. is embodies the whole damn thing i'm trying to do with fail on is embrace fear and embrace failure i'm curious how this works out for my brand my personal brand they're like <laughs> oh i didn't know nick was so fucked up <laughs> oh it's going really well guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this definitely won't be the promo for, for yeah. your personal brand. <laughs> we might have to bury this in the podcast archive so nobody sees it. Exactly. <laughs> I saw you post on Facebook. It was about this adventure trip. And I was like, oh my God, this is like my dream come true trip is you just, well, you threw out an invitation. Hey, who wants to hop in my airplane? We're going to hit five, six different cities, stay for a couple of days. Uh, what was it? No more than 24 hours, no more than 48 hours or something? Yeah, in 20, yeah, you don't stay more than 24 hours and you can't plan 24 hours in advance where you're going next. So I love airplanes. I love spontaneity. Those two, that intersection of those two is like my dream come true. So why don't you tell us more about this and what made you come up with it? Is it a business idea? Is it something you do for fun? What's the driver behind it? So I'm torn on whether it's really a business. I mean, I'm, I'm working on building a small version of it, and it, it's, we actually launched it as a test last fall. But So the, the, the origin was this. Mastered flying at a very young age, got super bored, and I was like, all right, I'm doing stunt flying now. I'm like basically trying to rip the wings off the airplane to give, to give myself any kind of thrill. But then later what it became was, you know, maybe I just need to share the experience a little bit. Like I've always heard someone, you know, they say like when you, when you give back, that's when you really get, right? That's when you really like, feel fulfilled. So I just started inviting random friends to come on flights. And what I noticed is when I would take off, I'd look to the right and I'd see this like face of awe and just total wonder. So true. And that was my face. Mirror neurons fired. And I was like, wow, I'm happy again. Like, I'm so glad to be able to share this with people. So then I said, let me take this to the extreme. Let me go on Facebook and just crowdsource people to go on trips that I don't know well. And I'm a Facebook whore. I've got friends that I've not really, they're not even friends. Like I just met them once and was like, what's your name? Cool. You're my Facebook friend now. So it's I part would, of that insecurity, right? It's like, I got more friends. Yeah, I'm exactly. Okay. Like, I, I may not really have friends in life, but thank God I have 3,500 people on Facebook. Right. Yeah. Whatever. No one, no one's buying it, but I actually have great friends. <laughs> just in case they're listening, they'll be like, what yeah. a dick. What the fuck? Do I not count? They're like, no, I love my friends. They're really great. But what ended up happening was that I crowdsourced and just put a random message that was like, hey, who wants in doing a nine-day adventure? Don't know what's going on. And I got like the host of The Bachelor from Australia and or Australian Bachelor, however you'd say it. I got my friend who's- how did, how did he- How did he? I met him at Summit once. Okay. So you knew him. Not really. So he was a Facebook friend. Yeah. He was like so a one-time thing. Yeah. yeah. It was like people I didn't know well. He's like that it was, dude. And then okay. like other people invited other people along. And, and I, I had a couple friends that I was close to, but it was really- this pretty profound experience where I would do stuff like that and realize here's six of us on an airplane 
you got to check your ego at the door because everyone else is like, I've got no control of what's going on. I'm going negative. They're floating off yeah, the seats. Yeah. <laughs> like they're like, shit, you know, this is pretty real. But by the end of the trip, like I noticed that there was this crazy acceleration of, of relationship building. Cause you're like, you ever heard like in like pickup artists, they talk about like, take a girl to three locations over the course of a night. It feels like she knows you more. I didn't read pickup artists. Yeah. Sorry, Nick. I, come on. Everybody <laughs> read the game. Did you not read the game? I think I probably did. Yeah, I everyone probably read Neil's book. <laughs> right. So like, I think they were talking about that in there of like, you move people to different locations. And I, I never did that in dating, but I did it in the airplane. Cause I was like, let me take someone over three days or whatever and move them through three different cities. So you end up having these crazy, like this crazy memory of like, oh, with that person, I've been to Boston and yeah. Bermuda and North Carolina. So you suddenly feel like I, I know you better than I thought I did. And the only constant is the people on the plane. Everything else is changing constantly. So people are holding on to each other, really embracing each other for the experience. So it's like, wow, like for a guy that's socially awkward, the highest currency I can think of is connection, right? Like real depth of connection. So I was like, wow, this is like, a drug to me. I mean, I love the idea of having this kind of vulnerable connection with people and true friendships coming out of these things. And I just kept on doing that, kept doing that. And I was like, wait, maybe this is a business. So I ran a test. Like, again, sometimes I just think I'm an idiot. Like, I'm really like, for a smart guy, I'm awfully stupid. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'd love to scale this, right? And for years, I said I'd scale it. And then it wasn't until last fall that I was like, oh, wait a minute. I have a flight school and renters and maintenance customers that own airplanes and fly. And all the ingredients you need, right? I have everything I need to build <laughs> this damn thing. Why did I completely just disregard all that? So in, in uh, November, I actually built an experience and got a bunch of people to come on it and said, hey, look, if any of my entrepreneur friends want to go, they can connect with any of the pilots that are going. And legally, you can share the cost with the pilot because that's not charter. So we did it. And again, one day, we did a one-day adventure it was awesome. It was super accelerated. And by the end of it, my customers that like two of my customers that went, by the way, the only two customers that went of mine were the ones that were like, this sounds like bullshit. And I like flying a fly. I don't need all this like bullshit on the right, ground. Right. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. By the end, they were like, I haven't felt that kind of connection. I haven't had an experience like that since I was in college. And one guy was like, you know, it's just like, these are lifelong friendships that came out of it. You can really feel that connection. It's so, it's authentic. So that, I, I want that to be something. I have a dream of, doing some bigger stuff that I won't mention yet because then you're going to make me do it in three months or some shit. <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful with your with your business ideas around here. Yeah. So with that one-day adventure, what was it? So you didn't stay overnight anywhere, but did you go to three locations or multiple locations in that one day? For this one, no. We just went, to, we flew to New Hampshire, to Lebanon, New Hampshire, which is right near. So I'll, I'll tell you the itinerary. We, we flew up there. We had five planes went. I think we had a total of like 12 people. Hmm. Immediately we went to... Simon Pierce Restaurant, which is this really cool restaurant perched on the top of a waterfall. They have a glass blowing studio in the basement. Everything's locally organic, like crazy good ingredients. So already people are like, what the hell is this? Like there's a unicorn like flying by the window <laughs> sure, or something. It's sure. just magical. And then we went over to a raptor park, which is like eagles and hawks and falcons. And they actually recover these birds. And they, one of our guys called ahead and said, we got a bunch of pilots coming to your Raptor park. It's like, oh, we're going to do special stuff for the pilots. So we get there and they're like flying hawks over our heads. Like the wings are touching our head and stuff. It was amazing. amazing. So it's like a sanctuary for? Yeah, it's like a sanctuary for these birds, owls and all that kind of stuff. Then they were like, oh, for the pilot group only, we're actually going to go release an owl back into nature. So like, we're going to drive you guys down to a field and we're going to all release it. And so I was like, wow, that was awesome. Then we went to a gorge and took like a view of this beautiful gorge that they have. Then we went to this old town that was actually like a, the Rockefeller is actually pretty influential in this community and, and the Billings family, which were like big banking in I think the 1800s. So it's like this beautiful old like New Englandy town. 
We go uh, just like hang out, grab some food, went to some hippie restaurant where it's literally like, you like, you know, it makes me think of like, what the hell was that movie called? I think Unicorns are kick-ass, man. Did you ever see Basketball? Basketball or something? Long yeah, so it's just ago. like, yeah, yeah it's like the tie-dye shirts. <laughs> like, yo, bro, it's like crazy time here. <laughs> right. You know, like, it was just like these dudes making the most amazing chicken and like, I'm like, I didn't know you guys were good chefs. I just thought you were a bunch of dirty hippies. But it was just this amazing experience. It was really outside the comfort zone of most of the people. They're there. They're like Long Island guys that go to nice restaurants. And here we are like at some hippie restaurant in Vermont. And it was like just during the time I'm like listening to the conversations that are coming up. And it was like real stuff. So you're more of like a curator, right? Like you're you're kind of just putting together. You're like a connector. So you brought all these guys together and you're kind of just, you're in it, but you're sitting back a little bit looking at it from the 30,000 foot view, just seeing like how it's all flowing, how the conversations are going. Yeah. And actually during the first launch, I, I thought I'd like need this big plan to create this. And I just fielded basically one question and then everyone just went. And I was like, say who you are without any external characteristics whatsoever. Like what's like what business you run or you can't say what you do. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't yeah. matter. I'm like, who are you yeah. by essence? Like, what is it? And it was just like, uh, no one knew what to say. And then people started to really share with real stuff. And that was it. Like the day was set in motion. That's a great icebreaker. Like icebreakers are stupid, I think. But I think if you can take out, take away like a person's identity based on what they've accomplished or, or what, what they do for a living, get to the heart of the matter really quick, don't you? Yeah. And it was, I'm telling you, it was, people had a hard time answering at first. And then they just started getting into like their feelings and, like, you know, really like, like the deep identity that they have for themselves. It was very cool. And so that's, I mean, that was it. And if, you know, if the conversation gets off the rails, I would just like gently kind of steer it back. But it was, it was pretty magical. That's awesome. So what's, what's your ultimate goal with it? What's your vision for it? Like, I know we've talked about like your dad really didn't have a vision for, the, for, for your flight company, but what do you like? And I know you're different. You have big ideas. You are looking to do cool stuff. Like what's your ultimate vision with that? Well, so this is the thing. I, I, I do have a great appreciation for aviation. And I think that we as an industry have done a terrible job of promoting it to people. Like even you said, you're interested in being a pilot, but you're not doing it. And it's like, God, how can I get you to want to be a pilot? Like I'm, I'm so close to where I would do it. That's like, what I'm saying. You know, how many nobody, people? Nobody's nudging me. That's what I'm if saying. If I had somebody like, like holding a flame to my ass, I would, I would, I would do it in a heartbeat. All right, fail on challenge. Let's <laughs> do this thing. Let's do this fail on challenge. Hey, you can't turn the table here. Okay. <laughs> No, but I, I am close. But it, it wouldn't even be like for your benefit because I wouldn't, I wouldn't come here to do your flights. But it is my benefit. Why? Just because it's a... Uh, the industry wins, yeah, right? Sure. Like, and I know I shouldn't... You know, my profit's not going to go up necessarily, but shit, if you're another pilot, maybe I'll be like, hey, we're doing this flight adventure out of New York. You come rent one of my planes and bring some cool people along. Like, it, everybody wins. Or you're like, Nick, I want to buy a plane someday. You never know. Yeah, and I know we talked like... Because I, I mentioned this when we were starting to sit down and munch on some chicken tikka masala that... I was thinking about it at one point, and you made a good point. You mind sharing? Like the reasons to be a pilot? Ah, uh, just the connections. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, so yeah. I, I, and actually, I have a book coming out soon, so I'll plug myself. I don't Shameless even know what it's called. Plug. I don't even know what it's called yet. But you already written it? It's pretty much it's just in editing right now. Got it, cool. So part of it was I realized, like, you know, all these people, all these entrepreneurs come to me, and they're like, dude, I want to own a plane. Like, yeah, okay, get one. Like, you want, what do you want? Like, get one then. Like, what is the problem? Like, yeah, but it's like so expensive. I'm waiting until I make my millions. And I'm like, all right, well, once again, aviation just blew it with the messaging. Everyone thinks it's so expensive and it's so, you know, it's it's just unreachable. So part of the concept of the book was just debunking, like, 
it's so cheap to buy a plane. Like it's, you could buy a little four seater for thirty thousand dollars. Please release this book. Yeah, I'm telling <laughs> I'm you, serious. it's the whole roadmap Please. for what it means to buy your own plane. Please release. So this the book. the whole premise though was like, it's not enough to say like you should have your own plane. Okay, and here's ba- the numbers. Back it's, to the book. Yeah, it's <laughs> stop what you're saying. Back to the book. When's it being released? <laughs> I think I'm like two months out. <laughs> okay, now you can continue. Yeah, that's no, fine. So more of what I wanted to like, I started the book out though with really getting to like, here's why you should be a pilot. Because no one tells you that. Everyone thinks you should be a pilot because it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, that means nothing to anybody. What it really comes down to is like, whatever you care about, airplanes are a multiplier of that. So like anybody in business knows that it really is the relationships you have. It is your network. And if you want to get someone on your plane, if you want to get an hour with someone, you want to get a committed, dedicated, focused hour with a person that you care about, invite them to come to dinner or lunch in another state. And you fly them there. Their Wi-Fi doesn't work. The phone doesn't work. You like, have to talk to they're me. They're sitting up front with you. And you know what? You gave them an experience that they're probably never going to forget. Uh, and again, as long as you're like good about it. But what, but, kind of, what kind of plane are you flying? Are you flying like a little single engine? Or are you flying a... Like what kind of... All the above. I mean, I fly... Matter. I typically will fly a small plane. And the reason is this. It's cool to go on a Gulfstream. That's all. And again, you've done it with Jet Smarter and that kind of stuff. It is cool. But... It's not that different from the airlines. It right. really is. No, you're you're in the back of it's the cab. It's actually worse, to be honest. Yeah, you're it, isolated. Yeah. You don't really know what's going on. You can sort of see outside. When you're on a small plane, you have the full panoramic. They can work the controls. Like They can see what's going on. It's a real experience for them. They're like, wow, this is a whole different way of being and living. And that's what I really wanted people to get was like, hey, my part of it is like I want to be friends with people. I want to have real connection. But part of it is like I also want, if someone walks away from the plane going like, wow, I don't actually want to be a pilot. But what else is possible in my life that I've been writing off as impossible because of logistics or whatever it is? So I think that that's really kind of the underlying thing is build amazing relationships, have this just, you know, again, it's like I could go to little islands that people don't even know exist and I can get there real fast. And it, like if I told you the money, you'd be like, you got to be kidding me. Right. Like to but, go to Nantucket, let's cheap. go like, like, like Nantucket. Let's say I want to go to Nantucket and I want to take some friends there for dinner just to really give them a wow experience. So my plane, it's about an hour each way. It's actually a little bit less. I burn 12 gallons of fuel each way. The fuel's $5 a gallon. So it's 60 bucks each way. Parking is $20. So what is it, 140 bucks? Yeah, transportation. What's that? For, you're saying for transportation. All, all in, yeah. yeah so all like in. my cost with fuel and, and you know parking and all that stuff is $140 for four people. Four-seater plane? Yeah. Now, again, if you rent a plane, it's a little more. Like if you rent a plane, maybe it's $150 an hour of actual flight time. But still, you're not talking about a lot of oh, money. you're saying because you own the plane. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But either way, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of dollars to have what would seem like a million-dollar experience, right? You're creating like a million-dollar lifestyle. I mean, we have like mutual friend with Jason Gaynard, yeah. right? And this is mastermind dinners, right? He connects all these super, super successful, high-level business owners and you're saying, you're saying, yeah, obviously that's super valuable because we're, what we're talking about right now is connection and networking. And you're saying, take that model. Well, it's not like 10 to 12 mastermind dinner. That's how many people they usually have at a dinner. But moving it down to four people, putting them in a confined space in a plane, and taking them to a dinner in a cool location. Dude, I, I love it. Yeah. And again, it's for me, it's not profitable right now because I'm not doing it as a charter flight. I'm really doing it as like, let's just share costs and I've... And I, I think, I mean, my ROI is massive. I've got some amazing friends in my life that have given me great business ideas and things like that. Which brings me along the lines of, uh, so you run a jet charter company, right? So who are some of the most amazing people you've met just through that? I would have to imagine, like in New York, in the New York area, you've got to have some pretty interesting people going through your business. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't meet them, though, because I'm not okay. flying the plane, right? So typically, and even if I am flying the plane, it's not that kind of relationship where a lot of the customers don't want to hang out with their pilots or talk to their right. pilots. So either way, I lose, right? Yeah. Either way, it's like, I'm the pilot. I'm like, hey, and they're like, just yeah, fly yeah. the plane. Let me do my thing. So I, I haven't met that many people through the charter business itself. I mean, we, we do have some great customers that I've met that are kind of stand out, and they really have been just wonderful human beings. That people would the, know? No one I'll share. Sure. But people would recognize their name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why won't you share them? It's just, it's out of respect. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. It's I out get of respect, it. I get right? it. So, you know, and, from and that perspective. Private, a jet charter company is very high touch and high personalized and the relationship's everything. Yeah. I mean, if you remember, there was, I think on a charter flight, someone had filmed Michael Jackson at one point and they released the video of him flying on their jet. And it's like, man, that's just death. Like, what, what are you doing? That's what people pay to not have to deal with this shit. And then you're going to exploit them. Yeah, it just totally. doesn't make any sense. So, so I obviously talked about the adventure trips, which... Do you have one planned? When's the next one? I think I'm going to be doing one in May up to Toronto, actually, to go visit like a lot of the Mastermind Talks guys. And I'm thinking of doing like a two-day trip for Toronto and then Niagara and back. So that's in the works. I'm just working on dates for it because really my constraint are the pilot availabilities. So I'm looking to see what pilots are going to be available. But it's it's an interesting model. I'm hoping it turns into something. I don't know how committed I am to it yet. Sure. It's more of like a fun... Yeah, it's a passion project, and I'm kind of like, I don't want to offset the main business for this. But even if you could break even on that, just as like a passion project, the if you bring in people that you don't necessarily know, like your Facebook friends, like you don't know who they are. So <laughs> you, you can throw it off on Facebook, have people reach out that you don't know, basically, but that are interesting. Yeah. And the ROI on those relationships are huge, even yeah. if you just break even on the actual financial aspect of it. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I think more of the challenge is that I... I don't feel I'm ready to tie up my company's resources to run this. So then I do it myself because I'm like, well, you know, there's big projects going on with Ventura. The last thing I want to do is say, like, let me pull away my admins and some of the other team to do it. So I do it myself and I don't like coordinating. I actually don't like calling people. You don't like the logistics. Yeah, I can't stand it. Gotcha. I feel like that's, that's not where I play. Yeah. Fair enough. So what are you most excited about moving forward? That's a good question. I think... The number one thing right now, and it's not any particular project, what I'm most excited about is, and again, we talked a little bit about the fact that I did Landmark, and I think because of the way I grew up in the industry, and By people- the, Just for context, for people that don't know who Land, what, what Landmark is, it's- It's like the personal, it's a personal development course that you just get some clarity around how you're showing up and stuff like that. So when I did the, the Landmark work, what really came out of it for me was the amount of negativity I carry for, for, for my industry. And I think the, and I actually went back and looked at it. And the reason is I've grown up around aviation people, aviation people all jaded or what, what's the, not all jaded, but many, right? Like aviation has this pattern of like swallowing people whole and just leaving them with nothing. And that's why like people say, you want to make a million in aviation, start with five. So is that why all, there's also that negative connotation around like, Oh, it's, so unattainable to own a jet or, or yeah. a plane. Yeah, because people make bad. It's you know what? It's a passion industry, right? So you make a bunch of money and you're like, I don't know, man. I want to own a jet. I just want to own a jet. There's no shortage of people who want to take advantage of that guy with a bunch of money who wants to buy a jet. So I think that that's like those are the stories that get shared or the stories that didn't go well. So I had a lot of negativity and you know, like I had this dialogue: we can't make money in aviation, can't make money in aviation, can't make money in aviation. So I believe it at some point. I'm like, you know, it's true. I can't, how the hell am I ever going to do anything? So I, I kind of became self-defeating. And with the work with Landmark, I really kind of got clarity around the fact that actually I've had so many opportunities sitting right in front of me that I just couldn't see because I was too busy complaining. And I was too busy feeling sorry for the circumstance I was in. 
So I think what I'm most excited about really is actually just looking at my current circumstance and the and Ventura and the other opportunities that I'm facing with a new set of eyes and with, with the eyes of like, where's the opportunity here? Because I actually think it, it's good that everyone's complaining. That gives me room. That gives me room to maneuver. And if I'm the one who sees possibility and everything, then I'm, I'm going to win in the end. And even if I don't win, I'm going to learn a lot. Yeah. And, and really, at the end of the day, we're That's all going to die. Idea, so right? yeah. I just want to have a fun ride, learn a lot. I get to fly airplanes. It doesn't suck that bad. Life could be worse. Exactly. Cool, man. Well, I don't want to take any more of your time, but I thank you so much for hosting us here in, in your New York City apartment. Absolutely. And we'll have to get some more chicken tikka masala soon. Fantastic. But I'm not letting you off the hook because you accepted the fail-on challenge. So. Shit. I should make it conditional on you becoming a pilot. <laughs> you should, but I'm going to end the podcast too soon for that to happen. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Cool. All right. So you can find Nick at Nick Tarasio on Twitter. That's at Nick Tarasio. And of course, for that spelling and all the links and resources Nick and I discussed, including more information on his YouTube channel and aviation company, that'll all be found at the page created, especially for this episode. That'll be at failon.com slash 026. And next week, we are sitting down with my good friend, Clay Abair. Clay is a crowdfunding genius and the creator of the six-word intro. I've spent a fair amount of time with Clay over the past year or so, and he is one of the most absolutely well-liked people I've ever met. Everywhere we go, people will just love this guy. But he's endorsed by Tim Ferriss as the crowdfunding guy. It's a great episode, and it teaches you how to start a business with essentially no risk. So don't miss it. If the podcast has the wheels turning a bit, please email me at rob at failon.com. And let me know what your biggest struggle is in getting started or breaking through to the next level. I respond to each email personally and would love to learn more about your business and where you're at. As I continue to build Fell On with the goal of helping people embrace failure, share their struggle, and decide once and for all to create change in their lives, I'd be really grateful if you could help me out. Subscribing to the podcast takes a single click and helps the show simply get found by more people. And when people can find the show, it means it can help more people, which in return means you are helping more people by simply subscribing. To subscribe and rate and review the podcast, super simple. Just visit failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.